Um, We're now going to read this evening's passage, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, and then we'll jump to chapter 2, verse 17. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord's, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And then jumping to verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And now we're jumping to Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Um, Thank you very much, Esther, for reading for us. And my name is Adam, if we haven't met. I lead the student team here. Um, And a really warm welcome to Chalmers this evening. And we're really glad that you're with us. And whether it's your first time or your 500th. And please, if you haven't already, turn back in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Um, And we're starting at verse 17. That's on page 80T, if you've lost it, in the Church Bibles. Um, We read a bit more for context, but this evening we'll just be thinking about Malachi 2, 17 to 3, 5. Um, And before we jump in, let me pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray. Your word says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, 
and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Our Father, we thank you that when you send your word out, it affects things. And so we pray simply that you would accomplish your purpose for your word this evening in all of our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start this evening with a question. Um, You'll see it on the outline on the back of the service sheet. Um, Here's the question. Does God even care when people don't obey him? Does God even care when people don't obey him? That's basically the question that the people in Malachi's time were asking. We'll see that in a minute. Um, But it's also a question we might find ourselves asking today. Does God even care when people don't obey him? If you're here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I suspect this may be a question that you've asked of the God of uh, the Bible, the God Christians believe in. Because I guess all too often in our world, bad people seem to get good things. Think of the work colleague who lies and cheats and piggybacks on other people's work while slacking off themselves. And think of them getting all the praise from the managers um, or even a promotion. Or in a bigger scale, we hear all the time in the news of rich and powerful people exploiting workers to inflate their own profits and seeming to get away with it. Does God even care? How could he if these people are getting blessed? Um, the question in our passage is actually it's a really weary and cynical one. It's not a righteous cry for justice, as we'll see in a minute. It's a question born out of personal disappointment um, and God seeming to give blessing to other people. Uh, and what we do is we turn things round on God and we ask, um, ask whether he's being just or fair. I guess we see people in our world being promoted to positions of power um, who hold views on morality that are increasingly out of step with what God's word tells us is good. Uh, and policies are being made or rules in the workplace that make it harder and harder to be a Christian. Why are these the people that God gives influence to? Does God even care that they don't obey him? I think we're particularly prone to ask this question as Christians when we experience personal disappointments and at the same time we see others getting what we want. And I think sometimes, to be honest, it can be quite petty. I mean, my wife and I have been trying to find a flat um, to rent recently and we've been finding it frustrating and missing out on viewings and getting beaten to it by others. It can be easy to grow discontent and to expect God to give us what we want. Um, After all, isn't he our father? And to see him blessing other people and not us, I I think for us this cynical questioning of his character that we see in verse 17 is crouching at the door. And there are far more serious areas that Christians might fall into doubting God's just character, relational disappointments and problems with our health, financial struggles and family difficulties. It's fair to say the original audience Malachi was speaking to were asking this question. And in fact, they might have went, gone a bit further than we might go. They were saying halfway through verse 17, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or end of the verse, where is the God of justice? And we, we might not go for a full character assassination on, on God the way that they do. 
But we can at least question what on earth he's doing when we see people who don't serve him getting on a whole lot better than us. If this is your first week uh, with us for a while, um, you're joining us in the middle of, a, middle of a series in the book of Malachi on Sunday nights. And we've been seeing that Malachi's listeners are a disappointed people. Disappointed because their return from the exile hasn't gone as planned. Instead of a glorious new creation enjoying God's blessings where God's enemies were defeated, they inhabited a pokey area of land, no king to defend them, their wealth and the wealth and might of evil enemy nations being rubbed in their faces. I think it's, in this passage, I think it's particularly that expectation that God would wipe out their enemies on their return from exile. I think that was the particular source of their disappointments. And because instead these evil nations seem to prosper, that's what prompts the weary cynicism of verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Why is God letting these evil nations prosper? Where is the God of justice? It's important to say this attitude uh, is is sinful. It isn't a righteous cry for justice that you might find, um, if you're familiar with the book of Habakkuk. And the cynicism of verse 17 is clear when you read it. Uh, They're accusing God of having a totally distorted morality, And God's response, rightly, is to say that this kind of attitude wearies him. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. The word wearied here is the word for physical exhaustion from hard manual labor. It's like God is worn down by them, prattling on with their baseless accusations against his justice. This, in the book of Malachi, is just another glimpse of the relational breakdown between God and his people that we've we've been seeing over the last few weeks. But I think we ought to guard our hearts too and repent if this attitude of weary cynicism towards God and questioning his justice has crept into our hearts. Does God even care if people don't obey him? Well, the answer that our passage gives us is that God cares enough to step in and do something about it. On the one hand, that's not a surprising answer, um, not if you know a bit about the God of the Bible. Um, But I think what is surprising, at least for Malachi's hearers, is where God chooses to step in. They'd be expecting and hoping that God would respond to their complaint by turning to open fire on their enemies, pouring out his holy anger on their evil. Um, And and don't misunderstand, Malachi will get there. Um, But before God deals with the evil of the nations, um, he actually points the finger at his own people, um, those who are complaining to him, and says, you need to be dealt with. God cares so much about evil, his standards are so high, that he has to purge it from his own people first. Um, And God's plan to step in and purge evil from among his own people happens in three phases. Um, I've put those on the handouts. Um, So phase one, sending his messenger. His messenger. And this is three verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And this picture is of a forerunner clearing out the obstacles for a royal visit. God's messenger will go before him to prepare the people so that they're ready for God's own arrival. 
And 3 verse 1 is, uh, is the famous verse in Malachi. And those of us who know the Gospels may recognize this verse. It's applied to John the Baptist. Um, that was the point of the reading that we had from Matthew. John is this messenger who goes before God himself. And so by implication, um, and this is the point that's made in the Gospels, um, Jesus, his arrival, John spends his ministry preparing people for, well, he is God come to earth in fulfillment of Malachi 3. Um, And as you read uh, about John's ministry, what the people needed to be prepared for the coming of God in his son is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that was John's message, a message of turning from our disobedience to God's. In many ways, John was a warning shot, um, giving people a chance to respond before God arrived on the scene in the person of his son. Phase one is preparing the ground for phase two and phase three, and which we'll get onto in a second. The soil is being cultivated before the seeds are ready to go into the grounds. Um, but to go back to our original question, um, we're, we're already seeing how much God cares when people don't obey him. Because John's entire message, uh, the, the message of God's messenger, was all about repentance. Jo- John's day job was calling people to turn away from their disobedience and to turn back to God. And in fact, the people in Malachi's day already had a sort of a proto-John, if you will, in the prophet Malachi himself. And the name Malachi means my messenger, as in the 3 verse 1, I send my messenger. Um, and so his ministry of calling people back to the Lord, which is essentially what he's been doing through the, through the book, is the same pattern of ministry as John. And so even just the fact that there are prophets like John and Malachi on God's payroll, well, that should be evidence of how much he cares when people disobey him. And this warning shot through John the Baptist is, is really a gracious thing to It's gracious that God warns his people um, because of what's about to come next. This is um, phase two, um, this is on the handout, phase two, by refining his own people, by refining. Here Malachi wants us to picture a metal worker um, sitting over his furnace, smelting silver or gold to remove impurities and to leave behind a pure metal. Verse three, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The people are impure. Even if you haven't been with us for the rest of Malachi, we've already seen tonight that their attitude to God stinks. But how about this um, for a list of charges? Some of the things we've seen in previous weeks, and the people are bringing lame offerings to God. The priests who were supposed to teach the people were immoral and corrupting God's message. Men were faithlessly marrying idol worshippers and divorcing their own wives in the process. And there is a big uncleanness problem among God's people that needs to be fixed. And it starts with the priests, or the sons of Levi, as verse 3 puts it. And they were the ones who were to mediate between God and his people. Um, But this refining extends to all the people. It starts with the priests, but it extends to all. Verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, that's the whole um, nation, will be pleasing to the Lord, as in days of old, as in former years. 
Um, I take it um, there are two key things that this picture of a refiner helps us to appreciate. Uh, the first is this kind of movement from impure to pure that we've, been, uh, we've touched on. Um, and the second, um, I take it, is that it will be uncomfortable. It will involve judgment. Um, I think that's abundantly clear when you read verse 2. Um, verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like full of soap. Who can endure? Who can stand? But the answer is no one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Some will be spared and by mercy, and they will be purified and cleansed. But for others, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ means judgment. That's for those who don't repent and believe the gospel message as John the Baptist was urging and preparing people for. We touched on this a few moments ago, um, and this is uh, just to to point out the results of phase two, the results of this purifying process. It's there in verse four. Um, Have a look there, and let me read it. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in days of old and as in former years. Once again, God's people will bring offerings that are pleasing to him. Offerings are a big deal in the book of Malachi, um, but so far, actually, the picture in regard to offering has been pretty bleak. In chapter 1, the big issue was that Israel were bringing bargain bucket offerings to a God who deserves nothing but our very best. God said there that he wished someone would just shut the whole operation down, and he was so appalled by their offerings. And last week we saw another reason God doesn't accept their offerings. Um, It's worth looking there and have a glance up at chapter 2, verse 13. And let me read. Chapter 2, verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from your hands. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. And their faithlessness in their marriages, um, which is symptomatic, as we saw last week, of a wider faithlessness to God's and his covenants. Well, that meant that God had no regards for their offerings. And their offerings were tainted by their own sinful lifestyles. Uh, and all of that background on offerings in Malachi means that this, um, 3 verse 4, is a big moment. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord no longer corrupted by their sinful lives, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in days of old and as in former years. Like in the good old days, God will be pleased with their offerings again. And so that's the result. And just to come over to to us now, um, I mean, we've got something way better than Malachi's hearers. For them, this refining Malachi was telling them about was a future promise. Um, But actually, we can look back and see this actually happens when God turned up in the Lord Jesus to refine and purify. We notice that the the refining process started with the priesthood. When God turned up in Jesus, it turned out that it wasn't just a few priests that needed taken out and the others scrubbed up a bit. Instead, this is clear as you read through the gospel, the whole temple system with all of its priests was rotten. Um, And it needed to be stripped out and replaced with an entirely new order. Um, And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is this new uh, mediator, new 
temple, new priest, a new mediator between God and his people. He gives us a perfect sacrifice, and he leads us perfectly. So he purified the priesthoods, but he also purifies all who believe in him. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living gods. And that's Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 14, if you're uh, writing these down. And not only that, um, purified conscience and um, sin forgiven, but we are given new hearts in the new covenants. Hearts that are being transformed and renewed day by day to make us more and more like Jesus. We said from verse 4 that the end goal in Malachi of this purification is that God will, uh, people, God's people will bring him offerings that are pleasing to him. And when we hit the New Testament letters, we see uh, all over the place language of acceptable sacrifice, pleasing offerings to God. Um, but for us, instead of bringing animals to the temple, when you get to the New Testament, it is the transformed lives of obedience to God, um, of his people that please him. And Romans 12, verse 1 says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we have the benefit of living after phase two in God's plan to step in and do something about evil. And we've seen and are seeing his great purification project unfolding. We can look back to Jesus shedding his blood on the cross to cleanse and purify all who believe in him. We can look back to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who transforms us from the inside. And day by day, Christians can live out verse 4 of our passage in Malachi, offering our whole lives to God as living sacrifices. And every obedient act done in worship to God is a reminder to us that God's plan to step in and do something about human evil is in motion. And so that's phase two, uh, that's the refining. Um, Now let's move on, uh, phase three. Um, God will step in to do something about evil, by judging those who don't fear him, by judging. Malachi 3, verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Um, Here is a a picture of God's final judgment on all humanity. It pictures God as a witness against all evil. God sees every bad thing we've ever done, every hurt we've ever caused with our words, and even every wrong thought we've had. God sees all of it. He keeps a record of all of it. And like a witness in the courtroom, he will testify against us every wrong we have ever committed. The evidence will be staggering, and a guilty verdict is certain. It is a frightening reality that God would testify against you in this way. And this is what will happen to anyone who doesn't repent and believe the good news of Jesus. The list in verse 5 isn't exhaustive. Um, These are just some examples. Um, 
possibly particularly things that were going on at the time. Um, but I guess it's good news. Um, it's good news that adulterers, those who betray their spouse, um, will be held to account. It is good news that those who abuse the most vulnerable in society and oppress the hard worker, the widow, the fatherless, it's good news that they'll be held to account. And we may not have personally done all of these things, but the bottom line is there at the end of verse 5. Let me read that again. End of verse 5. They do not fear me, and they don't fear God. Ultimately, none of us have feared God rightly, and none of us have given him the honor he deserves as our maker and our king. None of us have obeyed him perfectly as a holy God requires. And God cares so much about justice that he can't let any wrong, no matter how small it feels to us, be swept under the carpet. I said before, I think one of the things that's going on here is God sort of turning the camera back round on the people who were questioning him in 2 verse 17. This passage should humble us. It should remind us that we are all part of the problem. That without Jesus, we all fully deserve God's judgment. If we're Christians, that means we ought to remember that we can only stand before a holy God because Jesus has purified us. And for anyone who isn't a Christian, this passage is a sober warning. This day of judgment, verse 5, is still to come. And when God will witness against all the wrong we have ever done, And the verdict will be guilty for anyone who hasn't turned and trusted in Jesus. If you haven't done that yet, please don't delay. If you have got questions about why Christians believe this warning is trustworthy, well then please come and speak to me or perhaps someone who's brought to you um, afterwards. And we'd be really glad to talk more about that. We started our time with the, the question, does God even care when people don't obey him. And for Malachi's listeners, this weary cynicism led them to wrongly accuse God of having a distorted view of right and wrong. As he said in verse 17, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Does God even care when people don't obey him? God's basic answer to their accusation against him is that they've wearied him, and they need to repent of that. And then he turns the camera around on them and says that he cares so much about evil that he's going to come to them to refine and judge their sin. And they were disappointed because God didn't seem to be doing anything about the evil nations around who were prospering. But God tells them, first of all, that they need to make sure that they're on the right side of his justice. So that's for them. And Malachi's original here is, what about for us? For us now today. Well, we have the benefit, don't we, of living between phase two and phase three of God's plan to step in and do something. Not only do we have this promise to hold on to looking forward, but we can look back at human history and see God come to earth in his son to purify people for himself, a people who fear him and day by day bring offerings in righteousness that please him. And I think actually seeing this partial fulfillment um, should give us more confidence um, that that phase three will happen. Uh, God will one day come back and judge all human evil.
If we are ever tempted uh, as Christians to question God's justice because of what we see or experience, and particularly, I guess, when we're disappointed, um, then the message of this passage is clearly that God has proven himself to be just. And in fact, the only reason that any of us are here today is that God decided to step in and do something, which is good news if we're trusting Jesus, because it meant purification as one of his people. And there absolutely is a place to cry out for justice um, without this kind of calling into question God's character, like um, in 2 verse 17. Um, But that's not what this passage is addressing. Um, But wonderfully, 3 verse 5 says, there is a day when he will put right all the wrongs in the world. Let me pray to close. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that we can be sure that you are just, that you despise evil and love good, and that you have acted and will act again to do something about evil in your world. Lord, we're sorry for the times that we are tempted to call into question your justice or your character. We confess that so often we are so selfish and only care about our own problems. Lord, your sense of justice is so much greater than ours. We acknowledge that we ourselves needed purifying, and we praise you that you have done that for us in Jesus. Thank you that we can therefore look to your great day of judgment in the future without fear, knowing we are fully cleansed and fully forgiven. Father, we pray for any who are listening, who don't yet know you, but who know the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would cause them to repent and believe the gospel. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.